Welcome aboard the Battleship Retention. I am Scott Nye. I am Julie Sasnovich. And thank you for listening. Julie, it's just us this week. It is. Um, so uh, the the inmates are running the asylum, which is a very appropriate joke for this week's it's topic. Um, David Bax is on assignment and Tyler Smith is unfortunately still in the hospital. We actually just saw him over the weekend, talked to him about this episode a bit. He gave us some ideas. Um but if you want to find out more about what's going on with Tyler, you can go to caringbridge.org slash visit slash Tyler and Jennifer Smith. Um, there is a GoFundMe link there. Um, he's made a lot of progress, but still has a long way to go. So anything you can contribute would be appreciated. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And we're back. Um, we didn't really think of a talk for the show topic, but that's fine. Let's just dive right in. Let's just dive right in because we got something meaty. Yeah. So this was your idea. This was my idea. So, um, this episode is movies about therapy and therapists. Um, it doesn't have to be exclusively about them, but just that involves those topics in some way. And like a loose definition. Cause like. I, in looking for, you know, my own therapist over the years, I've never really figured out the difference between like psychiatry, psychologist, Oh, I have a whole breakdown. I'm sure you do. I have a whole breakdown. Because you're much better at this than I am. Um, thank you for noticing. We are encompassing all of those things. I think the delineation we're drawing is that it has to be some form of talk therapy. Yes. And. So no like electroshock or anything. Well, and also like the main solution, the main problems and main solutions aren't necessarily um, medical, I guess. Yeah. There has to be like some emotional angle to it, I guess. Right. So I, I wanted to just dive into the terminology for just a quick second because it can be very confusing, especially now. So in the United States of America, modern day, the there's four terms that we're kind of going to use a lot that I just want to make sure we establish what they mean now. So a therapist tends to be somebody who like does talk therapy. It can be individual, children, adult, couples, group, but it's like they sit down with someone, talk about thoughts and feelings. A psychologist can do talk therapy. Um, they also might have more of like um, kind of a academic background. They might write papers and books and things, um, and they tend to have more of a neuroscience background. A psychoanalyst, a little more rare these days, but they do exist. It's the ones that you think of when it's like they're sitting behind you on the couch, you're talking about your dreams, you're talking about the subconscious. And then a psychiatrist now is only somebody who does medication management and kind mm. of like hospital admissions. Um, so maybe like at a mental hospital or people deciding whether to admit you. That's all psychiatrists do now. Now, what's really confusing <laughs> is that the further you go back in history, the more these things are interchangeable. Yeah. And you only have to go back probably about 50 years for these to all be the same thing. Right. So we will try to use the correct terms whenever possible, but yeah, the further you go back, the more this is all one thing, especially because like 
and we'll get into this a bit, but the idea of like Freudian psychoanalysts, uh, psychoan- psychoanalysis, that used to be the only kind of kind of this there was, and then there have since been other kinds. So that's kind of just a free tip if you're looking for mental health care yourself, but... <laughs> know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, it is very confusing. Um, but yeah, the further back you go, the more it just like is the same. Um, so yeah, how did you want to approach this topic? I mean, I, I guess it kind of came to mind as we're both uh, actively in therapy. As we are, as I would recommend most people be at some. Oh point. yeah, um, not for you. Don't have to have any great crisis. It's just great gives you a better understanding of yourself, the world around you. Yeah, that is a common misconception too. Is that people are like, well, you have to be a certain level of fucked up to like qualify, and it's like I assure you, you do not. Yeah. Like, if there's anything in your life you want to make better, therapy may be for you. Um, I did want to kind of, before we dive into it, um, I had previewed this question with you. Um, We've been cramming. We've been cramming movies about therapy because immediately after I thought of this topic, I was like, oh God, we haven't seen some of like the most obvious ones. So I wanted to ask you if any kind of common themes emerged or patterns you noticed in cramming these movies? Um, I mean, this feels like a slightly leading question that you already have your own answer lined up for. Yes, but I told you about this question. You could have had your own answer. I know, and I, I didn't Okay, well, thinking about it. I mean, there's definitely like a through line I found in a few movies of like people who run into some kind of trouble and are forced to go to therapy by the law yeah. um, as part of the rehabilitation. Um, I found a few examples of like office politics around like okay. psychiatrist facilities which is always interesting to like it's always interesting to think of places that are for like a public good that also just have like their own office politics yeah it's petty like, drama yeah petty dramas too um so a few of those there's a few like repressed trauma unlocks some very key um, thing unlocks the answer to all their problems how convenient. I know, right? Well, um, it's, a, it's good dramatic structure. Yeah. Not, not always the case in active therapy, but good good dramatic structure. Yeah. I, I wrote down some that I noticed in like a lot, like more yeah. of them than not. One of them is dream and fantasy sequences. Sure. I mean, especially when you're dealing with like the subconscious and Freudian stuff, you're going to get a lot of that. But even ones that didn't would traffic in that. Um, a lot of movies seem to be like kind of self-conscious about the fact that there's a lot of two people sitting in a room and talking. So it would compensate with very like vivid imagery. Mm, interesting. Um, and sometimes that could be like a dream sequence, but there's some will talk about that. It's like even somebody recalling something like yeah. just an actual memory, the way it's shot is like very exaggerated because it felt like the filmmaker was almost like, I'm so sorry, people are sitting here and talking. Here's exciting things. Um, which for me, I'm like, I could watch two people sit and talk all day. Sure. I'm good. Um, Professional boundaries are a major theme. (laughs) Um, Lack thereof is like a huge through line. Um, Whether or not the movie thinks that is a good idea or a bad idea is a huge theme. And just generally some really fucked up shit in people's pasts. Hell yeah. Um, So I broke it down into kind of like some, what I saw are kind of some themes, some sections. I wanted to start with like some of the earliest movies that we could find that tackle this because they have kind of a very different flavor to what comes later. So we were curious, we're like, what is literally the earliest movie we could find to watch that deals with this? The answer, folks, is a 1926 German silent film called Secrets of a Soul. Um, They tried to get Freud to consult on it because he was still alive and he was basically like, fuck off, the movies are horrible. but this movie kind of rules. 
Yeah, it's really good. And also, I mean, even without Freud's direct involvement, they're very deferential towards him. I think even like the title screen is like from Freud's great achievements. Well, it's like, no. they found they found some of his colleagues who were a little less scrupulous sure, sure. and consulted with them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this was very so this is a GW Pabst movie. So this is like the height of German expressionism. And this is what I'm talking about when I say like vivid imagery and wild dream shit. For sure. And it um, helps make up for the fact that there's long talking sequences with intertitles. Yeah, so like psychoan I can't say this word, psychoanalysis <laughs> via intertitles, little rough. Yeah. Little rough. But it's also like it was impressive because this movie is very close to a hundred years old, and a lot of the stuff they're talking about is like still kind of relevant to the field. Sure. Um, but I have to imagine like watching this in 1926, a lot of this stuff people would never have heard of it. Like it hadn't oh, totally yeah, hit sure. the mainstream. And like there's like some wild stuff like this guy his main issue is he's like freaked out by knives because he like there was a murder in his neighborhood and then he's like freaked out by knives and then it like delves into his whole childhood and there's like dream sequences where he's like in hell and like it's pretty cool yeah very cool um we couldn't find much early because like the earlier you go it starts to be more like psychiatric hospital but like they're viewing it through a very physical medical lens yeah i mean there is like uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which, you know, twist, takes place in a mental institution. Yeah. Um, and then there's one other we found and didn't watch, where it's like someone was like being hypnotized into committing murders or something like that. Yeah, so kind of this stuff that's like circling the idea yeah. of like what we know as therapy. Um, there's also weirdly a Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movie that I didn't think we had watched, but you felt rather certain we had. I called... know I have. Okay. It's called Carefree. Well, yeah. if you remember it better than me. I mean, I remember watching it. I don't remember much about it other than, you know, there's the expected collision between that format of the Fred and Ginger movie with something as serious as psychoanalysis, yeah. where it's like they can only take it so seriously. But... Um, I mean, they're always good. Yeah, but Fred Astaire is uh, playing a psychiatrist. And isn't it like Ginger Rogers doesn't want to marry her boyfriend, so her boyfriend makes her go to the psychiatrist right. yeah. to be like, what the hell's wrong with you? Yeah. And this is actually a weirdly persistent theme in this era of men being like, this woman has something wrong with her and like forcing her to go. Oh, for sure. That, even though she probably doesn't have anything wrong with that her. That is kind of another running theme that I hadn't really considered. Yeah. Um, well, it kind of gets into a lot of the i mean this is really just coming to me now i mean it's kind of interesting that a lot of the roots of psychoanalysis are around studying like female hysteria yeah because we end up running into that with john houston's freud which is a biopic of freud um where most of the people he's treating are like privileged daughters and wives who don't really have anything else to do except figure out their own shit which like god bless them but um it being what was that, the 1860s or something? There's a lot of... 1880s, I thought. Uh, yeah, you're right, 1880s. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of societal forces bearing down on these women that they do have to unpack. Yeah, and I... Uh, there's something I read recently that really stuck with me about mental health, which is, like, people get diagnosed and treated quite often based on how burdensome they are to other people. Sure, yeah. Like, if you have some situation and you just are keeping it private and you are dying inside, but you are not causing, quote-unquote, trouble for other people, it may just burn under the radar. But the second you start inconveniencing people, they're like, oh, get thee to a hospital, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing with A Dangerous Method, where yeah. um, they're studying Karen Knightley in depth um, because she's been, I mean, not quite committed. Well, no, I think she's committed at the beginning. Um, but yeah, because her symptoms have 
uh, manifest so violently that they have no choice kind of thing. Yeah. Um, there's an, weirdly another Ginger Rogers movie on here, Lady in the Dark. Love Lady in the Dark. Which is, I think, again, some man is like, you have issues. You must see a therapist. Yeah, because I was trying to remember... The premise, and it's unfortunately hard to get a hold of. We saw it at TCM Fest, a nitrate print thing. Yeah, thank you. Um, but it's like she's a magazine editor. Yeah, I think the thing they think is wrong with her is she likes her job. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so they're like, well, clearly you need to be analyzed. Yeah, and but I remember it kind of ending more progressively than you might expect for that kind of thing. I think she has a husband and a job at the end. Hell yeah. Um, you can't have it all, ladies. You can't have it all. Um, but then another lady movie from the 40s that I recently watched, it's called Lady in a Jam with Irene Dunn. It's basically sort of a knockoff bringing up baby. But basically, Irene Dunn plays a kooky, her- a kooky heiress, which, by the way, is my favorite movie archetype. If you have kooky heiress movie recommendations, that is like my favorite character. But she, the thing they think is wrong with her is she just spends too much money. So they, they literally, I think it's like her, uh, her family money founded like a psychiatric institute and they send a doctor from that to like secretly study her. So here's like ethics violation number one, but, um, and just figure out what's wrong with her. And I'm watching this movie and I'm like, she's fun. I don't see a problem. (laughs) She just spends money and she's wacky. But, um, you know, she ends up falling in love with the psychiatrist because who could resist Irene Dunn? Nobody. Who's Um, the psychiatrist? Honestly, it's just this boring man. Some guy, yeah. It's just some guy that really cannot stand up to her in this movie. Like, that's how forgettable he is. Um, also, in the 40s, you have Spellbound, Alfred Hitchcock's Spellbound. Yeah, well, I want to kind of center around these movies from the 40s, like Lady in the Dark. Like, well, what was this other, the fun Neris movie from? Uh, when was it? Yeah. I want to say like 42, yeah, something like that. Because it does feel like that was kind of like. I mean, it's, it has to do with a larger transition, I think, in American film, kind of post-war, of getting, of delving into soft film premises a little bit deeper and saying, like, okay, we've been making crime movies, we've been making daffy comedies, but why are these people doing this st- kind yeah. of stuff? And it kind of hits with the rise of awareness of, you know, I think post-World War II, they would have still called it shell shock. I, I know that's a World War One term, I can't remember what else. What we with, what we would now call PTSD. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But just kind of a rise of understanding that things were imprinting on people in a yeah. deeper way than was being discussed. And so, yeah, you get stuff like the like Lady in the Dark and Spellbound, and um, a forties noir called The Locket, which I know we both love. Yeah, um, that are all about like these repressed memories that unlock some aspect of the person's inner working and are usually explored through yeah, dream sequences or elaborate imagery. And I mean, Spellbound's kind of a drag in my opinion. Yeah, I'm not the biggest fan. It does have some great dream imagery. Cause um, it was designed by Salvador Dali, right? Yeah, so yeah. it looks gorgeous, but it's like very much like one-to-one, like we got to investigate what all these weird Dali symbols mean, which I don't know like what order they went in if they were like, okay, we need something to represent this. Yeah. And design that. Or there's like, design whatever and we'll figure it out. Something tells me you can't really put a lot of limitations on Salvador Dali. I mean, <laughs> my guess, but you never know. Um, if they're offering him, you know, like $80,000 or whatever. And they're like, yeah. It's like, well, fine. This will support my melting clocks for the next <laughs> five years. Um, but, but something like Lady in the Dark, I think, folds in the dream imagery a lot better and has a more kind of surreal feel to even the regular drama and part of that is that it's shot in this like very beautiful technicolor and stuff like that um whereas i feel like you know hitchcock for all his gifts um 
at that point, he was still being fairly realistic with how he depicted drama. Sure. But I also don't want to put our 2023 goggles on too tight here. Like a lot of the stuff, I would love to know what it was like to watch Spellbound when it came out. Like there are probably people who saw it melted their minds. Like this is like wild stuff for the time because like, you know, this idea of like psychoanalysis and all of the stuff was like just starting, like you said, to permeate American culture. And it was very new and hip. And I I was having trouble thinking of specific examples, but the more you get into the 50s, the more you have, maybe not as a main plot point, but characters mentioning analysts as like a one-off. Yeah, that was... Like an aside. Yeah, that was harder to like research without yeah. the con, for examples. The only one I could think of offhand was um, a Pillow Talk where Tony yeah. Randall... Um, who's like the romantic inferior to Rock Hudson because, you know, how could he be? But um, he's constantly mentioning his analysts trying to like get him out to do more things and like live life a little bit more. Yeah, but it's interesting because you get to that point and eventually it just becomes a shorthand. Yeah. Like, you know, these earlier movies, they sit you down, they explain it, they really get into it, but eventually it just reached a level in the U.S. where we're like, okay, we know what this is. But I also think, like, and again, I wish I was able to think of more examples to back this up, but it does feel like those that, that was mostly attributed to someone like a Tony Randall type character of, like, somebody who's... Who wasn't strong enough to make it on his own, right? Who wasn't like a rock Hudson who needed his analyst to fall back on. So the problem was, and I couldn't find an example of this, it's just a totally hazy memory, but I feel like I'm thinking of some movie where either like a Jane Mansfield or a Marilyn Monroe is mentioning having an analyst. But I feel like that kind of folds in with their like ditzy blonde persona. Sure. Of like, oh, these women are beautiful, but they don't really have it together because they need their analyst. You don't think it was like trendy at a certain point? I think it was trendy, but I think also, you know, for movies that were reaching a mass audience, you have a mix of, like, New Yorkers laughing at themselves for needing analysts and Midwesterners laughing at New Yorkers for needing analysts. Like, sure. it was still played as a joke, but one which people were appreciating on different levels. Yeah. Um, speaking of Marilyn Monroe, in The Seven Year Itch, um, the Tom Mule's character, he's editing a book by a psychiatrist. That's right. So it's like he doesn't see a psychiatrist, but that's maybe more evidence of it kind of like entering the mainstream a little bit more where like that can be a plot point And we're all just like, we know what's going on with that. Yeah. I mean, I have a few from the 50s. Um, there's that great thriller 14 hours where um, Richard Basehart is kind of trapped on a ledge and they're all trying to figure out why. Um, and I think, the f- and, and that's literally, by the way, not metaphorically. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think at one point his psychiatrist comes along and um, helps lend some perspective on the matter. I, I don't think they kind of like come out and say it, but there's strong hints. It's because he's, he's gay. gay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it kind of just points to like, I was saying like a larger development of folding in psychology into film plot points. Um, there's also that film Whirlpool, which we saw a couple years ago at the Academy, um, where a woman keeps like forgetting that she's been, I think, stealing stuff. It, this ends up being like a hypnosis plot. Yeah. But um, there's still a psychological angle to it. It's really interesting. Um, Shadow on the Wall was one you thought of. Um, yes. Which has been a while since we saw that, but it's like there's a kid who saw something but kind of repressed it, if I remember Yeah, right. so... Uh- uh, a little girl sees somebody get murdered literally just by seeing the outlines right. in the shadow. And so there's like a, a kindly child psychologist who's trying to 
coax the truth out of her because she's the sole witness. Meanwhile, I think the murderer knows she saw it and is trying to kill this girl. Yeah. So it's like very pulpy, but kind of getting into that early, like maybe this can be for kids too. And like realizing that kind of where it intertwines with law enforcement in some cases. Um, Also, you know, you start to get into a certain sensationalism. I have Three Faces of Eve on here, um, which is a Joanne Woodward movie that's based on a true story about a woman with multiple, what do we call it now? I think it's multiple identity dissociative disorder. Anyway, split personality, whatever you want to call that. and yeah, a lot of the movie is just like her talking with a psychologist trying to like unpack all of this. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that a lot of these films, even going back to the ones we were talking about from the 40s, like take the form of kind of a detective story where they're yeah. like, they have a certain number of clues, but they're mostly repressed memories that they're trying to unpack to come up with the solution to a murder, to the a woman getting married. Yes. <laughs> like whatever, talking a guy down off a ledge, like there's always a, a problem that they're trying to solve through... Uh, sort of conventional narrative structure but in a new way yeah and uh john woodward won an oscar for this because it's like a total feast for an actress you know um but yeah i mean it's interesting because i feel like had this woman existed what 30 years earlier they probably would have just like locked her in a dungeon like and wouldn't have bothered you know uh burned her at the stake yeah lobotomized her you know these kind of charming things um that's kind of my section on that kind of era i'm not going purely chronologically i i then have more thematic groupings i just didn't know if you wanted to add anything there well yeah i mean the 60s is kind of an interesting fulcrum where then it starts to get into at least from my perspective more like therapy for therapy's sake so like it's not a major part but splendor in the grass um Natalie Wood has like a major breakdown essentially from being way too horny for Warren Beatty, which like understandable. Yeah. yeah. Um, and get, ends up getting, I don't know if she gets fallen hospitalized, but definitely receives extensive psychiatric treatment, Yeah, but it's not to like figure anything out about her. It's just to genuinely heal her. And similarly, um, David and Lisa, a great kind of like semi-independent production from the era is just about investigating these two people and, uh, there are issues, and we're like speaking of Warren Beatty, Lilith, um, it's him, and oh hell, uh, Gene Seberg, um, who are both patients at a psychiatric facility. And again, like they have maybe too great of mental disorders to like be out in public, but they're not so great that they're like inhibited. They're mostly just like normal maladjusted teens, uh, well, maybe slightly more than teens, but um, who are just kind of receiving treatment for and trying to reintegrate into society. And an Elvis movie that I just watched very recently that I didn't even know was related for this episode when I started watching it, it's just been on my list forever. But um, Wild in the Country kind of has like the Goodwill hunting format where he assaults somebody and has a history of violence. And so instead of jail time, they're like, okay, you'll be on probation and you have to go to therapy. And his therapist is Hope Lang and they kind of develop a quasi romantic relationship that almost becomes full romantic. Um, and has some of the most moving like romance work that he did as an actor, um, but is also like in their scenes very much about like just trying to figure out who he is underneath it all, and is he really just a poor guy from the tracks, or does he have a lot more that he could be exploring about himself and uh, expressing about himself? And it's really just about figuring this guy out. Um, okay, well, if we're doing the 60s, I'll do the 60s, and then it's thematic. Okay. All right. So um, another one we watched recently, Move Over Darling. This is a um, Doris Day 
James Garner vehicle, yeah. romance vehicle. So there's there's a bit of a love triangle emerging. It's a remake of My Favorite Wife, basically. So James Garner is married to Doris Day. Um, she gets lost at sea. He thinks she's dead. Remarries. Surprise, she's alive. Spoiler alert for the first five minutes. <laughs> um, yeah, you'll be fine. But uh, the the woman he marries has an analyst that she seems to see like three times a day. Yeah. Like she's very, very dependent on him. And this becomes sort of an archetype of like the person who will not even like take a sip of coffee without consulting their analyst. So that is played for comedic effect. And I think he's an extremely like European seeming type yeah. of guy. Um, what else? So we have a, uh, a Sidney Poitier double header here. Um, so in The Slender Thread, this was a movie I talked about on a TCM Fest episode recently, but it's a uh, suicide hotline movie. Not a ton of those. <laughs> but he um, he's not fully a psychologist yet, but he's a psychology student who's like in training. So they have students at this college, like staff the helpline. So he, um, Ann Bancroft calls and he's like, most of the people calling this hotline, they're like not serious about it. They just need someone to talk to. She calls and she's like, I've taken pills. I need someone to talk to while I die. And this is like his first night on the job or something. And what's really interesting about this movie is like Sidney Poitier later solidified his persona as like this unflappable guy that you just like can't perturb but he like makes a lot of mistakes he like fucks up and kind of like will yell at her and then be like oh god oh no what have i done and it's like the whole time he's trying to get them to trace the call so you know sometimes like they're shown as these people who never make mistakes but they make mistakes um a couple years later he was in pressure point which was another one we crammed recently yeah it's um him and bobby darren um, he plays a prison psychiatrist. Which, like, Bobby Darren, underrated actor. Oh, yeah. He was to he was yeah. great in this. Um, and his problem is that he is mega racist, yeah. which was um, seemingly viewed as a much bigger problem in the 40s than today. But he was aligning himself with Hitler. Yeah, I mean... Because it's set in the 40s, but it's well, made in the 60s. I mean, you say made a bigger issue, of, but a lot of the drama of the film comes because Sidney Poitier recognizes that that's a big issue, but everyone else in the hospital, or no, in the prison rather, who's on kind of the medical board is like, is it really that big an issue? And especially towards the end when he's like nearing parole, they're like, he's well behaved, you know, he's contributing to the prison, he's doing all his jobs fine. And Poitier's like, he's still a huge racist who's definitely gonna do something bad. And like all the other white doctors are like, he'll probably be all right. Yeah, but it, it does kind of raise an interesting question, which is like, is racism like a mental illness? Sure. And I don't know that it arrives at an answer because it's like, what what constitutes somebody being mentally healthy? And again, is it like I said, is it like that they can quote unquote behave themselves and just be a good member of society? Or do we have to dig deeper and kind of carve out all the rot, you know? Um, no, the, the movie was interesting, but something that kind of bummed me out about it is that it sets it up as we're going to have like the two of them like going at it and have that be the dynamic. But then like a half of the movie is just flashbacks of Bobby Darren yeah, and Sidney Poitier just like disappears. Those go on for a bit. There are some cool, they do do some really good imagery with memory and stuff. Yeah. In those where it kind of creates like transition points from one murder to another through what seems like kind of dream imagery. Yeah. But there are a couple long stretches where it's just like, and now he's going to another racist meeting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it was kind of interesting the way they staged some of those in a very like 
uh, theater type of way kind of where he's box. just like black box. Yeah. Like yeah. walking between stuff. Um, there's also a scene that it's like, it's not going to sound sinister when I describe it, but you just have to trust me that it is. So he, you know, Bobby Darren is like a racist, but he's also just kind of a menace. And he and his friends take over a bar and just yeah. play tick, like spray paint tic-tac-toe over the entire bar. Including on like the bar owners and his wife's bodies. Yeah. And yeah, it, it ends up becoming this whole like, I mean, it almost seems like an art installation of like, yeah, man, you could reopen this as like a Greenwich Village <laughs> hip Instagram, yeah. like influencer spot. Yeah. But it's yeah, it's really it's effective. very sinister. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And the, the thing I liked about that movie too, slight spoiler alert, is like, you know, Sidney Poitier doesn't like fix him. They don't quite come to an understanding. Yeah, for sure. It's just like. Because the, the framing device of this movie is that Sidney Poitier, it's like 20 years later, he's like the head of the, a different prison psychiatry department, and his very flustered colleague, played amusingly by Peter Falk, is like, I can't with this guy. And Sidney Poitier is like, let me tell you about a guy. Yeah. Um, so, but he, the moral of the story is just like, you gotta stick with it, even if your patient fucking sucks, and you may not fix them, and that's just that which is a surprising kind of approach for these movies to take. Yeah, for sure. But one that's like sometimes the crux of the field, right? Of like yeah. often I'm sure patients will like disappoint you or take sudden action that you feel like you could have prevented. Um, but, you know, there's still other people to help, other ways to help them. And you just got to keep plugging away at it. And maybe like between the era and that theme, that's a good place to talk about Freud in more detail, uh, the John Huston movie. Yeah. Um, so this was also a 60s film that we finally caught up with been on my list for a while it didn't have the best reputation for pretty much since it's been released and i can understand why it's definitely like i mean it's weird to sell for starters it's um seems to have incorporated a lot of what feels like in retrospect the lessons of like the european new wave like there's stuff in there that's straight out of eight and a half even though this was released several months before then it's like houston was really acting alongside those filmmakers and it and, has like electronic music yeah. and like yeah and it's like you know kind of pitched as a biopic but it's not the kind of great man biopic that a lot of biopics of the era were or and i mean still are to a degree it's very much like you know it starts out front of like freud changed the world and it like aligns him with i think galileo or like some other like massive historical figures of like these are the people who have charted the history of humanity oh yeah because you have the john houston narration yeah. at the beginning where he's like there have been three developments yeah. in human history and this is one of them we're like all right strap in yeah and so you suspect it's just gonna be like one amazing discovery after another that he does but it's really about like how equally fucked up he is yeah. and how many of the methods he's applying to his patients he's also trying to apply to himself and that the two kind of paths of discovery kind of go alongside one another and I mean it's really anchored in large part by uh, Montgomery Cliff's performance which is so 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 good yeah um and apparently Houston cast Cliffs because they've just worked together on the misfits um and they didn't really get along because Houston's like an old school dramatist and um, well, speaking of like, I need my analyst hand at all times. Montgomery Clift always needed an acting teacher on set to like tell him that both of them were making good choices. Where yeah. was like, come on, I'm the director, gay man. Yeah. Um, but Houston ended up casting him here, one, because he thought it'd be good for the role, and two, because he knew Montgomery Clift was a closeted homosexual. And he was like, 
based on what I read in the commentary track that comes on the Kino disc, it sounded like Houston didn't really have a problem with him being gay. He had a problem with him being closeted. <laughs> He's like weird stance to take. I know, but he was like, I think by playing this role, I could I could really help you um, kind oh. of come out to the world and be more comfortable in your own skin. Straight savior arc, kind of, yeah. <laughs> okay. And so it's like, I mean, it's and it's interesting too because Clift then dies. I don't know, two years later, something like that. And after that, Houston makes Reflections of Golden Eye, which is very much about a closeted uh, gay man trying to come to terms with himself and um, reaching kind of a tragic conclusion. So it's definitely like a theme in society that Houston was digesting and which doesn't come across here in any direct way. I don't recall any like homoeroticism or like kind of wrestling with that, but there is kind of an interiority to There's one character that seemed a little queer-coded. Which one? One of the early patients he sees where he starts to maybe get the idea oh, yeah. for, like, um, the Oedipus Complex. Maybe queer-coded, but that's more, I mean, that's more, like, overtly, like, incest-coded, where, like, yeah. in one of the hypnosis se- sessions, he, like, caresses this um, mannequin who he deci- who kind of characterizes as his mother, yeah. Um, and so it's dealing with a lot of stuff that for 60s Hollywood film, like they just weren't touching at all. And so yeah. you can see why it didn't really land at the time. It also apparently got chopped up in various forms. Um, it was at first written by Jean-Paul Sartre um, and he delivered like a three hour screenplay. And Houston was like, okay, we needed to cut this down a little bit. And Sartre's like, I'll show you cut down. They deliver like an eight hour screenplay. <laughs> and um, eventually they kind of settled on a two and a half hour form that the film exists in now um, without Sartre's involvement. Although apparently a lot of his writing did kind of influence the general structure of the film. But yeah, I mean, this was to me the big discovery of this little run, um, both because I've never been that big a John Houston fan as a director, um, but this was like so interesting and so well wrought and yeah i really hope it becomes a classic at some point yeah and just i really enjoyed it as well and just to add a couple things to that um you sort of touched on this but something i enjoyed about it is like a lot of biopics about people who are innovators in a certain field are very like and then he thought of this all by himself and then he thought of this all by himself whereas this is very much it shows like the synthesis of ideas it's like he goes to visit a guy who has this theory and he's talking to his colleague who's working on this and it's like yeah he was maybe the one who synthesized all of it but they like call out by name and have extensive like coverage of these other people who were kind of like bubbling up the same stuff around the same time um which you don't always get with a biopic like that it's also it's wild to like see like the birth of a field sure and him just being like did i just invent psychology (laughs) like all these moments of just like you can just you're just figuring it out you're just making it all up or not you know what i mean yeah but i think that like um fluidness of development is like very important to the film of yeah. like he gets a few things wrong he makes yeah. a few missteps he treats people in, a, in I'm saying he like treats his patients he develops a treatment for his patients that doesn't quite work and which he would probably not apply a few years later and but that also like opens the film up to I, I think how Freudian psychology in general would be treated throughout the 20th century of like by the time of the 60s it was like this is the way the mind works yeah. and the film is kind of operating in that Register, but because we see him make so many missteps along the way, it kind of opens up to where Freudian psychology would develop over the next 50 years, where it's like, 
okay, you know, this addresses some aspects of psychology and psychiatry, but it doesn't figure out everything. It's one way of approaching it, but it's not the only way. Yeah, it's also interesting in that wild and woolly time how there's like, there's zero ethics. There's just zero. Yeah, there's sure. there's an early scene where there's a woman in a hospital and she, she's like paralyzed. She's like, I can't feel anything. I can't move anything. And they're like, she's making it up. She's faking it. Montgomery Clift takes a needle and just sticks it in her leg. Yeah. And it's like, um, well, she was faking it. Would she like not be caring about this. And I'm like, y'all, you could just do anything. It's crazy. Well, and those demonstrations they do at the very beginning yeah. on the two patients that have like, one guy is like paralyzed, another one. Or no, he has a tremor or something. Yeah, I was trying to remember which is which, but like, yeah, the woman's paralyzed and the, and the guy can't stop shaking. And then they're just like, we're gonna stop those and then reverse them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then they just send them on their way. Like yeah. they're just switched. And I'm like, okay. Yeah, um, yeah. wild and woolly time. Um, so can I can I move on to my next theme? Uh, yeah. Okay. So this is a short theme, but it was it jumped out to me because it seemed to encompass a lot of the heavy hitters in this category. This theme is very specific. It is as follows: No nonsense male therapists having dramatic breakthroughs with traumatized young men. Okay. So probably the most obvious one here: Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. This is kind of like a huge entrant in the genre. I know you rewatched it pretty recently, if you have anything to... Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm always watching and thinking about Goodwill Hunting yeah. because it, it rules. And also, I mean, it's, I'm a big Gus Van Sant fan and it's one of his very best. But um, the big thing with Gus Van Sant, I find, is that he's very interested in the psychology of kind of like... It might be going so far as to, too far as to say toxic masculinity, but definitely traditional masculine structures yeah. of like men not wanting to fully open themselves up and the degree to which that either damages them or slightly saves them. And so what's really moving to me about Goodwill Hunting is it's kind of like, even though Robin Williams' character is a bit more like evolved and a bit more open about himself, it's really about two guys who aren't used to divulging full feelings to other people and who kind of arrive at major breakthroughs despite that. I mean, like, the most famous scene of, like, it's not your fault is just a very succinct way of unveiling and digesting, like, whole reams of trauma that I think a less um, curious film would try to break out into dialogue, but they're like, no, you get two great actors in the room, give them one simple line, they can have a major breakthrough that kind of says it all. Um, so, I mean, those therapy sessions, I think, work so well, both because you have two actors with great chemistry, but they're operating on a similar tenor of, like, kind of talking around the problem. A lot of their sessions are, like, telling jokes or telling stories about the old neighborhood, and then they only really reach the important shit, like, towards the very end, and then only in real brevity. Um, so it's not kind of this, like, classical psychoanalysis of, like, really breaking down someone's problems. It's, like, it's more indicating towards the modern therapy of like if you just talk to somebody long enough and kind of keep emotionally focused you'll get to the root of what they're going through yeah i mean if you haven't seen goodwill hunting yet like what's wrong with you like pause watch it come back well i think we're fortunately past the point i think both with that and titanic for two other like major 1997 films where like they went through a period of being at first like completely beloved and then like a little bit like well those are kind of cheesy and dull or whatever and especially in the career of Gus Van Sant people are like well then he would turn around and make like his big masterpieces which I'm not you know to me Goodwill Hunting maybe isn't as good as Jerry and I know some people would put Elephant above it um, but now kind of 
analyzing the whole of his career to date, um, Goodwill Hunting is right in line with all of those, just in a different way. And what's interesting about Vincent's approach to it is he just liked the script of like the guys and was like, I'm not sure if I can do this, but I'm willing to give it a shot. So in a way, it's just as experimental as anything else he did. Yeah. Um, I realize now I maybe should have mentioned this one first because it came earlier, but it doesn't matter. Okay. Um, something that's very much in that same vein and arguably maybe laid a bit of a, like, uh, create a bit of a prototype for Goodwill Hunting is Ordinary People. Yeah, big time. Um, Ordinary People is the best picture winner from 1980. It's directed by Robert Redford. My introduction to this movie was very bizarre because I, in my, when I was in high school, we had this program um, for like, the some upperclassmen every year would like go to a day of training and then do a presentation for underclassmen about like um depression like how to identify it in yourself and your friends and what to do so we showed clips from this movie now let me tell you when you only cherry pick scenes of (laughs) timothy hutton being fucking hysterical and just edit them together in like a two minute clip this movie seems like trash yeah so i actually like started telling people when i was doing this presentation be like this movie won best picture and people look at me like what the fuck (laughs) so I didn't actually sit down and watch it in its entirety until a couple years ago, right? A few years ago at this point? Yeah. Um, And I was blown away by it. It totally plays. It totally holds up. So, Timothy Hutton, I think he won an Oscar? Oh, gosh. I don't remember. Um, This is look upable, but he won an Oscar. He... um, so it's a family. It's a family. He's the kid. He's a teenager. Donald Sutherland is his dad. Mary Tyler Moore is his mom. And then he has a younger brother? Younger? Older? Um, he has a brother. Yeah. It's not important. He has a brother who, like, died in an accident, and he thinks it's maybe his fault. So this has obviously, like, torn the family apart. And I think he maybe there have been... Older. Su- older. Okay. So I think there have maybe been, like, he's had suicide attempts. So they send him to a therapist that's very much in this, like, no-nonsense, unconventional mold, played by Judd Hirsch, who is phenomenal. And this is just very, like... It's that kind of shit I can watch all day, where, like, Judd Hirsch is just, like... He's not fucking around, but he's not being a dick. He's just, like, you know, sometimes with these type of people, especially teenagers, you have to, like just push you have to just keep pushing yeah um and what emerges from that is like you know we get to the root of it and we get into all the shit and like you know it's like there's there's healing and whatever but it's just like it's i think that in some ways probably set the template for kind of what we think of as like the modern therapy movie probably yeah and yeah timothy hutton did win the oscar and he's great i mean yeah yeah. because it's also like movies about depression and i've always said we should do a separate episode about this it's so sticky because it's like do we diagnose it do we talk about it as this is this just a movie about someone who's sad like they're for movies about people who have depression there i feel like there's surprisingly few where people say that's what it is yeah it's just people like kind of moping around and just maybe trying to kill themselves but we're not like this is what's happening but I think here they yeah, do. Yeah, totally. And I, another film on my list, Donnie Darko, has the same thing. Of um, He's also seeing a therapist um, for what is clearly depression, but which the film doesn't kind of come out and say it. It's just kind of, like, understood. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, I don't know if you have anything to add about Ordinary People. No, you said it all. Great. Um, so I'm, I'm going all out of order here, but a few years before Ordinary People, you have Equus, which I don't know if you've seen. I've have not. you seen? Okay. So Equus probably the wildest of this lineup because it's 
Sadly, I do not remember who plays the traumatized young man, but it's a guy. Um, the therapist is played by Richard Burton, who is exactly what you would expect as Richard Burton being a therapist. Sure. Um, but they send the guy to Richard Burton because he has blinded several horses. Natural thing to do. You know, I mean, we get restless as teenagers. We go out, we blind horses. It happens. But it it definitely has that thing of like, there's kind of some weird like dream imagery and then it turns out to have like an extremely sexual component and it, it's just like it is kind of like what you mentioned earlier like this mystery why did he yeah. do it why did he do it why did he do it so like Richard Burton is just trying to peel away all the layers of like the sexual repression and the all the things to just be like why did he do it and it has an ending that's very ambiguous where Richard Burton's like I could fix him will he be happier? Mm. Because it's like... We'd all be happier blinding horses. Yeah. Well, I don't think the movie is pro-blinding horses. I just... <laughs> it's like, I could fix, like, the underlying stuff that's, like, happening with this and kind of make him more, quote-unquote, normal. But will he be happier? And especially because Richard Burton, in his private life... No, his character, sorry. Um, <laughs> whose name I forget. Is, like kind of dealing with like a loss of passion and he sees kind of like the excitement and freedom of this young sure. man and is kind of like jealous of that so that puts a very like ambiguous spin on kind of what i talked about earlier of like does fixing like what does fixing someone mean is yeah. it always the right choice um and then jumping ahead this is what four years after goodwill hunting um another one we just watched antoine fisher yeah um which it says in very large letters on the cover of D the dvd written by antoine fisher so this is a true story um denzel washington plays the therapist which is as wonderful as you would hope yeah um so this is in the navy yeah um the titular character keeps getting into trouble, he keeps getting into fights, and he gets forced to go to the... Yeah, falls along that same trend I was mentioning earlier. Yeah, so he gets forced to see, like, the Navy psychologist, whatever you want to call it, and he just shows up and he, like, won't talk. And the first few sessions of Denzel Washington being like, I have work I can catch up on. These sessions don't start till you start talking. I'll just sit here. And it seems like there's maybe, like, three or four sessions yeah. where, like, he's just sitting there, like, watching Denzel eat a bagel <laughs> and, like, fill out paperwork. Um, but then eventually they like get into it. Yeah. Um, did, oh, did you? No, I mean, the film is very like, I mean, even more so than Goodwill Hunting, very Hollywood. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot condensed about the real Antoine Fisher's life, but it's effective um, in terms of how it digs out in, in kind of like the typical format of these things of like taking a character who's like, I don't need any help yeah. and like gradually opening him up. And of course, he's paired with a love interest who also helps him open up, and there's kind of like a twinning thing there. Um, but I think, strangely, the Denzel scenes aren't necessarily the most effective in the film. Um, I was kind of expecting them to be because, hey, Denzel. But I don't think like the script's kind of as strong in those segments as it is when it's, I mean, especially towards the end when it's like him and his girlfriend looking for his family. Like those scenes played to me a little bit stronger and it, definitely by the time Viola Davis enters the picture at the very end. Which um, by the way, Viola Davis shows up for like five minutes, says maybe five words. And I was like on the floor, like losing it. I yeah. was like, she is such a weapon of acting. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's a testament to her talent, but it also kind of indicates how tepid the film could be up until that point yeah there's a few good parts between uh who's the guy Derek Luke who plays Antoine Fisher um and Denzel 
Um, but the way their therapy sessions end up going and like the reasons why Denzel ends them feel to me a little tepid and convenient. Um, and maybe not even like the most professionally backed. It just seems like Denzel has problem setting boundaries. Well, yeah, I was going to mention boundaries because I mentioned at the top yeah. that that's a recurring theme. This gets very like sticky with that because like boundaries are so important. Like my therapist says she will not let her clients follow her on Instagram and she doesn't follow them. She's like, that is too much. Yeah. So Denzel like invites Antoine to Thanksgiving and it, Antoine comes to his house and it's like, I, you can feel the push and pull of Denzel's character being like, is this a good idea? I don't know. Cause like, um, uh, Antoine Fisher was like raised in like a foster family and like doesn't know his real family. And so and it's like, it's sticky. Denzel and his wife are having problems cause they couldn't have kids. It just, I don't know. It feels a little overdetermined, a little obvious, um, in terms of its own psychology, but, um, you know, I think the stuff outside of the psychiatry stuff works a little bit better as all. Well. Yeah. Um, speaking of lack of boundaries, are you ready for my next theme? <laughs> sure. My next theme. This is a good one. Therapists falling in love with patients. Yeah. I mean, I touched on that with Wild in the Country. Yeah. So this, I, I did notice that it's not exclusively this, but it tends, it skews female therapists fall in love with patients. Sure. Again, it's not exclusive, but that is just, that is a pattern I noticed. Um, and probably one of the, you know, biggest entrants in this category is one we saw for the first time, the Prince of Tides. But to be fair, he isn't her patient. It, but he's, uh, it's dicey. It's dicey, but there's no, there's no strict patient relationship there. No, but it's dicey. <laughs> so basically, for context, this is um, a 90s movie directed by and starring Barbara Streisand, queen, icon, and Nick Nolte. So Nick Nolte's sister is Barbara Streisand's patient, and she commits suicide. No, she attempts. Or no, wait. Oh, wait. She attempts suicide. That's it. And um, Barbara Streisand is like, I'm trying to, like, figure out her past, but, like, her memories are blocked. And so, like, this is the most committed therapist you've ever met. In your yes. Life. Um, so she brings in the brother, played by Nick Nolte, to be like, "Hey, can you explain the childhood?" And yeah. like, we can figure out what's and going on. And I thought on. this would be like some a patient she'd been seeing for years. She's like, "I've only been seeing her a couple of months, and I really don't understand her. So I need to commit several hours a week to understanding the person unpaid." Yeah, someone's got to be paying her, right? I wouldn't bet on it. He's out of a job. Yeah, she's in a hospital. Well, I mean. Well, she's married to a famous guy. She's fine. Sure. Anyway, but like, so yeah, okay, technically not her. But then like they start getting into his shit. No, I know, I know. Anyway, the point is they fall in love. Um, this is one where like, you know, very fucked up shit is in his past. Yeah. Extremely, extremely fucked up shit. Maybe too fucked up for what Maybe the film should handle. too fucked up, honestly. Um, it's bad, but... Um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like exploring that thing of like um, the therapist herself is not doing great and like her marriage is a little fucked up and she's become kind of distant from uh, a lot of people in her life. And so like Nick Nolte comes along and reignites her spark and that's so convenient. Um, I'm not sure I like totally bought their romance, um, mostly because I can't. I don't totally understand 90s Nick Nolte being a sex symbol, but maybe that's just me. I sometimes don't totally understand 90s Nick Nolte. <laughs> just like, yeah. he has the most garbled voice. Where he's like, 
Uh, well, I guess I'm falling in love with you. <laughs> I don't know. But I've got this wife, I guess. Um, and, and he's also doing a southern accent the whole time, which further yeah. kind of parables the speech. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm with you there. I mean, they have, like, a very sweet kind of, like, getaway scene at one point. Yeah. Um, not like they're, like, bank robbers, but, like, right. <laughs> getting away to the beach or whatever. Um, I think you were a little hotter on this movie than I was in general. It did. Though. I should say it worked for me on the whole yeah. because I just, I love Barbara and, like, you know, there's very, you know, he's from the Southern family that's treating the idea of a New York Jewish therapist right. with a lot of, like, mistrust. Um, and, he, you know, him just being like, I'm a man, I don't need therapy, and having her break down the barriers. Like, I can, I eat that shit up, especially when it's Barbara. Sure. Um, I, I did feel, and I think this was my note after we saw it, that it kind of sidelines the Nick Nolte sister, which is, like, supposedly the reason for bringing everyone together, and it's just like, she's better because we forgot about her and now she has to be. And so like, it does like kind of get into the business of psychiatry through him, but kind of in a sideways way, um, but not actually like the main person who needed to be healed. Um, so yeah, it, I mean, it's a good movie. It's worth seeing. And I think people kind of shat on it when Criterion picked it up, but I think it's worth including. Yeah. And like the cinematography is beautiful yeah. and like the music's great. It's just like, it's a picture. It's a picture. It's a picture. Um, so then kind of we touched on earlier we had like prison psychiatrist navy psychiatrist um well wait are we still in the therapist falling in love yes with? okay great because yeah. I, I have a few that you haven't seen in this yeah regard, so I no sure. i yeah we're there great. we're there um but uh uh i have one a police psychologist um basic instinct yeah um so this is uh Which falling in love with might be it, no, you're right. You're right. It does. I, I'm counting like having a romantic yeah, or yeah. sexual relationship. I'm yeah. not like parsing the minutia of how much in love they are, yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, it's Gene Triplehorn's character um, is like, so Michael Douglas is a cop and then he has done bad cop things. So he has to like he shot somebody while high on cocaine. I mean, spoiler alert, but um, so he has to see Jean Triplehorn and check in with her and be like, I'm not still a crazy cop. And they have an on again, off again relationship that is very volatile. And it's just like, this is one where because she's a side character, it definitely like paints her as being kind of like, I don't know, it's just like this very like, well, who wouldn't fall in love with Michael Douglas? Even if there's professional boundaries you allegedly have to adhere to. Like, it just felt a little like... Yeah, but know. then we find... I mean, the real spoiler alert territory, we do find out that she had a past dealing with her own kind of obsession and yeah. obsessive issues. So there is, I think, a psychological foundation to sure. where she's coming from. And I think Dream Triple performance is so good that she kind of lends some nuance of like, she's clearly very torn about how she feels about him and very torn about how to approach how she feels about him. Yeah. Um, and it's just one of many aspects of that film is way more nuanced than it seems, I guess. Sure. Um, and, and that's just, that's simply a side plot of all the yeah, crazy yeah. shit going on in Basic Instinct, um, which I know you'll take any opportunity to plug. So if you have anything else to say about no, it. No, I feel like I literally just talked about Basic Instinct like on one of the recent episodes of the show. So, oh, okay. um, you yeah, know, it's always front of mind. Um, another, like, kooky little movie that I enjoyed, uh, Side Effects. Um, yeah, I was trying to, I could remember much about the details of the plot. So I, I did a wiki, okay. wiki yeah. deep dive. Basically, you know, without... Spoiling too much, like uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones plays the psychiatrist, and this is this is leaning a little bit more on the. I think she's maybe a talk therapist and does medication. It's kind of like a both. Yeah, I mean, because the title is definitely like pertinent to the plot of the film. Yeah. yeah. So um, Rooney Mara is the patient, and they. 
I mean, yeah, they they have a relationship. It's kind of a later reveal in the movie, but it's sort of like they're trying to scam people and it's it's all very sorted in a fun way. Yeah. Yeah. Do you like that movie? I remember really liking it. Yeah. I'd kind of like to see it again. Yeah. Because um, I haven't seen it since it came out 10 years ago, but I remember really liking it at the time. And I don't even remember if that... They might have even been in love before. I don't remember the exact timeline. No, I, I think they maybe felt because like they maybe didn't know each other before. Anyway, I um, walking and talking is another one. The um, oh yeah, Nicole Holofcener movie. Um, so Anne Heche, R.I.P., plays a therapist who's like, I don't know if it actually mater- materializes into anything, but she's like feels herself falling in love with a male patient. Does it materialize into anything? I don't remember. Okay. I don't think it goes very far. Like, yeah. I don't think it becomes, like, the point of the movie. It's just, like, you know. Well, it's in that very Nicole Hall Center way of, yeah. like, we're kind of doing this thing. Are we really? What else is going yeah. on? I mean, it, like, um, You Hurt My Feelings came to mind, too, as another psychiatry movie because um, Julia Redreyfus's husband is a psychiatrist who also is, like, having some career issues but doesn't really, like, make any major changes to his life. He's just, like, kind of becomes a better therapist. Yeah. Um, I was going to bring that up later. Um, but yeah, I don't super remember walking and talking, but I remember liking it. Yeah. Recommend. Um, The Departed. Yep. Um, Vera Farmiga plays a therapist who falls in love with Leonardo DiCaprio, which like, I mean, understandable. Yeah. Um, unprofessional, but understandable. (laughs) Um, and it's funny when I was making this list, I started to be like, why is this like mostly female? I mean, does it just... I don't know, do people think that women would be like easier to cave on matters of the heart with this or? I think, so I, well, I do have a few examples of men falling in the cinema. As, as but, do I, but. But I think it's because, um, because of like social stereotypes of men not opening up as much. And so you get a lot of scenarios of like kind of tough reserved guys who finally open them up to uh, these women and the women are so moved by that that they fall in love with them. It's, you know, it's very gendered and a little misogynist. But, yeah. Um, I, I think that's why it tends to resonate is it because it relies on a cultural stereotype that happens in a lot of relationships, a lot of straight relationships already of like women dating, marrying men who have some set of issues, but because of their love they open up to their partners in ways they hadn't with anyone before and so it becomes like a dramatic structure on which you can lay all that in yeah it is kind of funny with some of these though because you're like i'm like girl this cannot possibly be the first attractive male patient you've had who opened up his soul to you like if you can't like handle this as an occupational hazard hey, maybe they're bedding all of them we don't know their past that's true that is true um i'm I'm struggling to remember exactly which movie this happens in, but Harley Quinn across assorted media is starts as the Joker's sure. therapist, right? Yeah. Um, I think it's Suicide Squad. It's the first one where this is like depicted of how this happens. It might be. I mean, it's mainly from the comics and cartoons, um, but I'm sure. Yeah, they had to have at least touched. I on think the they do because yeah. they they like show it, and it's like she was his therapist, and then she like jumps in the vat of crazy acid for him which i'm like girl we gotta talk about boundaries (laughs) like for real because it's like i mean it like makes her dumb right (laughs) i mean it makes her crazy i I can't remember how much this is dissected in the movies but in various depictions of harley quinn it's definitely understood that she's still just as smart as she used to be okay she just wields it in a different way just has impaired um judgment (laughs) 
Yeah, I guess so. Um, so yeah, the ultimate love sacrifice is jumping in the crazy acid. Sure. Um, 50-50. Oh, um, yeah. The... Uh, uh, what is everyone? Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, yeah. uh, cancer movie. Yeah. Um, he starts. Seeing, I think she's not a full therapist. I think she's like a, a yeah. student. Um, but it's Anna Kendrick, I believe, and yeah. he starts seeing her. Um, I enjoyed that movie. Yeah, same here. I think it's an interest because it's a. It's based on a true story. It's about the writer who got, I believe, a rare form of spine cancer. Yeah. And you know, a movie about somebody just getting sick, it's sometimes like, okay, well, you need something else going on. You can't just watch them, like, suffer in a hospital bed. And the thing going on is, like, he's not, like, he's in denial. He's not really, like, addressing the gravity of the situation. He's not really engaging um, with it, with his loved ones, and he's just cutting himself off. And so the movie, his arc, is not about, like, just beating cancer. Spoiler alert, he does. But it's about, like, opening himself up and like the therapist is part of that which again i'm like girl you're not even a full therapist yet and you're falling in love with the patients <laughs> like your career i don't know man yeah um but that i don't even know if they like consummate it i think it's just like maybe a little flirty and there's an implication that it sort of turns into something i can't not remember because i mean he's like sick as a dog most of the t- movie um but yeah i think the implication is that it sort of starts something i definitely remember that being at least implied yeah. Um, I think that was all the female ones I had, if you have any. Um, sort of. So uh, there's a 2019 French film by a recent... Oh, God. My laptop's falling asleep. It's back. Okay, we're good. Um, by recent Palme d'Or winner. Um, God, why can't I remember her name? Justin, Justin, Justin Triet. Triet. Yeah. Um, she did this movie called Sybil uh, a couple years ago. That's a really good uh, depiction of these kind of like boundary issues. And it's not love exactly, but it's not not that. So basically, uh, Virginie Effery plays um, titular Sybil, who is a therapist and who is taking a step back from her practice in order to become a novelist. Um, As she's like reducing her patient load, um, she gets a call one night from this woman in extreme distress, played by Adele Exarchopoulos. Um, who ha- is an actress who fell in love with the leading actor on the movie she's working on and is now pregnant by him. And also the leading actor is in a more long-term stable relationship with the director of that movie. Um, and uh, Sybil kind of tries to put her off and tries to like not be her therapist and like tries to refer to other people, but she just keeps calling, she just keeps calling, she keeps calling. And at first it's like the patient's very obsessed with the therapist but gradually the therapist becomes more and more obsessed with the patient and starts giving over more and more of her life to her. And there isn't an explicit indication that this is for romantic reasons, but it's almost kind of like an identity merging film of like, um, she just become the two of them become so intertwined that they become inescapable. And it got me really excited now to see Anatomy of the Fall, which I know is coming out in a couple of days, but um, it's such a nimble, uh, film in terms of the way it plays with comedy and tension and drama and all this stuff and it really well we're seeking out um, do I have any other women in here I don't believe so okay so then I, I did have a, a small handful of ones where it's a male therapist falling in love with a female patient um, one of them is a delightful film that I take any chance to stump for which is what a way to go oh, sure. um, 
So this movie is fucking bananas. It's uh, Shirley MacLaine plays a woman who shows up to a therapist's office. I, I, I don't know if it's a therapist she's seen before. I think it's maybe a new therapist. And she's like telling her life story. So that's the framing device. Her life story is that she keeps marrying different men and then they die. <laughs> but every marriage, I think it ends up being four or five marriages. Every one of them, each segment is like shot in a different style of movie. Yeah. So... She'll say, like, my marriage to so-and-so was like a musical. And then it's just, like, 15 minutes of it just being an MGM musical. And then she'll be like, my marriage to so-and-so was like a European art film. And it's just, like, 15 minutes of that. So it's a fucking riot. And then I, I think it's Robert Cummings plays the therapist. Okay. or um, So she tells him this whole story. And then at the end, and she's just like, I don't know what to do. Like, I just try to marry for love and everything falls apart on me. And he proposes to her. He's like, do you want to marry me? And she's like, no. <laughs> um, I mean, listen, would anyone fall in love with wacky Shirley MacLaine? Yes. It's very relatable. But um, that doesn't work out. That's not reciprocated. Oh, but, no. um, you know, that's just like, you know, take any opportunity to mention that movie. Um, speaking of French films, we had a bit of trouble, like, finding non-English language films for this one. Part of it just the keyword feels to me, search yeah, issue, keyword search lack of depth of research. But yeah, uh, apologies, listeners, and definitely let us know what the ones we're forgetting. But uh, another French one, The Double Lover. Yep, yeah, yep. that's it. What an Ozone movie. Yeah. Um, that is a male therapist. One and of the most Ozone movies. <laughs> you think? Well, because it's, I mean, it's like aggressively erotic. Yeah. Very like scare filled and has like the doubling persona thing. Yeah, because there's, like, twins? Yeah. But I think that one... Because she falls in love with essentially both therapists. I don't know that they're both therapists, are they? They are. I looked oh, it up. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, and that happens... That's not, like, the conclusion. I feel like that happens at, like, the halfway point. Yeah, it's it's intense. And then they just, like, she starts, like, living... Like, the th I think the therapy stops. Yeah. At, and then they're just a couple. Um... That movie took some body horror turns I was not expecting. <laughs> I was rather upset by all of that. Um, and then another big discovery we had from our little binge watch, Mumford. Yep. We're here to tell you about Mumford. So we debated whether we should mention kind of the central conceit of Mumford, but it turns out it was in the original trailer and it happens maybe about a third of the way through. So we are gonna go ahead and mention yeah. it. Um, he's a fake therapist. So the 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 main therapist he like shows up in this town he gets a lot of clients the town is also named mumford the town he's, is also named mumford he's named mumford as is the town as is the town um but it's revealed um that he just made it up he just like forged his credentials he has no kind of higher education of any kind um he just is a good listener um and so he just set up a practice and started seeing people so on one hand it's kind of just like a movie about because he has maybe i don't know five or so patients you're following with some yeah. degree of regularity um and like this cast is stacked by the way because it's a lot of people before they were anyone like it's zoe deschanel's first movie um but yeah, great cast, and he's like... But it's also, I mean, it's a Lawrence Kasdan production. Yes. And he was just coming off some big success that I'm just going to look up and remind myself of, which is titled... Nope, that's Do I need to say things while you vamp, or... I, I, I feel like I'm vamping pretty well here. I can say more things. Um, oh, French Kiss was a pretty big hit. Yeah. 
uh, with Meg Ryan and Kevin Klein. So a lot of people were eager to work with him in addition to yeah, him just having a good eye for up and comers. But yeah, so it's uh, on the one hand, it's like about his relationships with all of these patients, but then it becomes about his attempts to kind of evade people finding him out. And there's two characters in the movies who are real therapists. And interestingly, they make the distinction that one is a psychologist and one is a psychiatrist without really saying what that difference means. Um, They're played by David Paymer and Jane Addams, and it's applied that they're having an affair and they are very funny, but um, they're presented as kind of ridiculous. And like, my only maybe bone to pick with this movie, which is otherwise very good, is like, it's kind of being like, all you really need to be a therapist is to be a good listener. Yeah. <laughs> because it's like these other people who have professional training, they're like, well, they're silly, but he's a good listener, so it's fine. Um, and one of the things my therapist has told me, which I thought was interesting, is like a lot of the training to become a therapist it's not about how to do the therapy. It's about how to protect yourself. Oh, sure. It's about how to set these boundaries and how to not kind of absorb everybody's shit through osmosis. And like, that's as important a part of it as what you're sending out to them. Um, but it is a really good movie. Lauren Dean is the lead. He didn't do much leading work before or after that, but he's great. Um, and it's also like, a lot of the pull quotes on the DVD were like, what a cute slice of life Frank Capper movie. And I'm like, yes, but with sex dolls and cocaine. Like it has like sort of a seedy yeah, also, underbelly. Jason Lee is a billionaire who's developing yes. very lifelike sex dolls. Um, but you talked about like the the fact that he didn't have any training with a lot of the trainings about setting boundaries then like gives license for him to fall in love with one of his patients, I guess. Right. <laughs> so he um, falls in love with a patient played by Hope Davis who like, I love her. She is like so good. underutilized on this planet. So more work for Hope Davis, please. But he, um, yeah, so he falls in love with her. And I guess it's not an ethics problem because he's not a real therapist. Sure. <laughs> but um, it kind it's of is. It's not a bad ethics problem. This is another ethics it's problem. It's another <laughs> ethics problem. Um, but yeah, I mean, their romance is like, you know, sort of sweet, even though he's lying to her and you know, all this, cause he's like, she has chronic fatigue syndrome yeah. and he's, this is early days of the internet. So you see him like looking up what that is yeah. and just like giving her suggestions based on what the early internet tells him to do. Um, but yeah, we really enjoyed this. Highly recommend. Yeah, for sure. Um, that's all I have for the, the falling in love with the patient. I, I had one more. Oh yeah. Um, David Cronenberg is the dangerous method. Um, which is, just worth seeing alongside like Freud to begin with because it's almost like the next stage of Freud's career where he's like I mean he's a side character in the film the main thrust of the film about Carl Jung um, falling in love with the woman he's treating played by Keira Knightley and essentially like I so I rewatched this a couple months ago because I hadn't seen it since it came out and I mainly forgot how unbelievably funny it is um, where Michael Fassbender's playing Jung is this like very buttoned up like trying to be by the book therapist who eventually just like more and more people are like i don't know why not sleep with your patient <laughs> and he's like well she is very hot and so eventually he and karen Knightley like start up a, a very like snm kind of uh, sexual relationship that ends up kind of imprinting too greatly on him and like starts to make him unravel and but in a very quiet way i think a lot of people's confusion about the film at the time was that it was a cronenberg film where like it isn't Insane, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, Kieran Knightley is doing very aggressive physical work at the beginning, but that even becomes more and more restrained as the film goes on and she starts to heal. But it's so much about like 
I mean, the key David or eight key David Cronenberg theme of like horniness will drive you crazy. Of like, it just keeps making young more and more miserable, even though he's theoretically more and more liberated. Um, so it's kind of an interesting twist on the supposed point of psychoanalysis. Um, right on. Uh, so then I have. Um I just briefly wanted to touch on group therapy before I kind of enter the vast miscellany. Oh, I've got the best group therapy film that you, that I know you haven't seen, but no, you- No, have at no, it. No, you introduced the, the topic. Okay. This is like, this, mine will be like the hypothesis of it, I think is the right word. I don't, I don't know what that word means. Um, okay, so um, I just have a couple that I just wanted to shout out. And we were like debating whether to even include this, but there's only a couple, so it's fine. Um, one of them is Rabbit Hole. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, uh, I think, kind of an underrated movie. I think it's pretty good. I know. It doesn't really seem to have stuck around, even though it got a lot of... Like, Didn't Nicole Kidman get nominated for actress? <sighs> I was trying to remember if she made it to the Oscars. But I'm just, the point is, it got like a lot of good notes at the time. Yeah. Everybody loved it, but then it just kind of came and went. Um, I think it's based on a... Yeah, it's based on a play. Yeah. And it's about... Um, uh, Nicole Kidman and Aaron Eckhart play a couple whose son died. He was like killed by a drunk driver or something. And it's basically about grief. I mean, it's a low concept movie. It's just them t- coming to terms with grief and working through it. So there are some interesting scenes where they attend group therapy, some kind of grief group. And what's interesting about these is that Aaron Eckhart's character is like into it. He's like giving it the college try. He's like trying to have the group therapy experience. Nicole Kidman, not feeling it. Yeah. So she just ends up like subverting it and kind of like insulting everybody at the group therapy sessions, um, which is like, we all process grief differently, but um, you know, that can be an interesting thing. I was actually, I was having trouble finding couples therapy movies. As was I, I don't have many. I don't know why that is. I think it's a very ripe, Topic. I mean, yeah. I feel like there's a lot of them from TV, maybe just because the longer format allows you to kind of dive deeper with it. Sure. Um, but anyway, it's just interesting, like, you know, you th- just this idea that obviously grief hits people in different ways and that they're experiencing it in very different ways. But like group therapy is like, by definition, a group experience. And it's like, if you're not both on board, it's not going to work. Yeah, totally. Well, it's funny. And we can get into this as a separate topic, but the all the merit, now that I'm thinking about it, all the marriage counseling movies they saw are like kind of poking fun at it um yeah they're not really like part of, a lot of these films we've been talking about are like really investing in the process and like showing all the good results that come from it I, I can't think of one marriage counseling movie that's like and then they save their marriage <laughs> through the counseling yeah um and then we didn't get too much into documentaries just because frankly neither of us watch a ton of them but i did want to take the chance to plug an astounding documentary from a few years ago called the work Um, which is, I don't remember where this prison is, but it's a prison that once a year they have like a open therapy group where it's a combination of the prisoners and then it's all men. And then like men from just the world who just like come together and do group therapy for a weekend. Um, it's like unbelievable. Like it's just one of those documentaries where like Folsom prison. Oh, Folsom. Okay. I don't think there's like talking heads or anything. It's literally just the camera plunks down and you just watch group therapy. And like, I was like sobbing by the end. Like this movie is like, even if you're not a documentary person, if you just like want to watch men and get into their shit, it's like, and what, what I also liked about that movie too is like, there are people in these groups who like have very different degrees of shit happening. You know, like there are people who are in prison for life and they're suicidal. There are people who 
you know, they're out of prison, their life's pretty good, but they don't have a great relationship with their dad. But like everything is given equal consideration. Yeah. It's not like a contest. It's just like, you're here, you're valid. We're going to take all of this equally seriously. And it's just very moving and wonderful. Totally. Um, uh, is that the end of your group therapy list? That's really all I could uh, muster. Right. Well, I guess, oh, oh no, I'll mention it later. Okay. Yeah. The, the main one I wanted to get to was the insane... 1990s erotic thriller Color of Night starring Bruce Willis. So uh, in this movie, Bruce Willis plays a psychiatrist who at the beginning of the movie is in session with a patient who commits suicide right in front of him. She jumps out a window um, and he is so traumatized by this that he can no longer see the color red. And then he essentially like quits his practice. He goes back. I don't know if it's he's like going back home, but he's moving to a smaller town where um, a colleague of his is doing like group therapy. And Bruce Willis attends like one of the sessions just to kind of like get out of the house, try to feel something again kind of thing um, and starts to get to know the patients. And then like that night or the next day or something, his friend is uh, killed. And so Bruce Willis has to take over the group therapy from his friend because all the patients are like, we trust you, even though we've known you for a day or whatever. You know, it's kind of a movie leap in logic thing. Yeah. Um, and I can't remember how, but somehow Bruce Willis just figures out that the killer must be one of the people in the group. And so the film is about him trying to figure out who of this group is likely to have killed uh, the doctor while also trying to treat them at the same time because he doesn't want to treat them all like a murderer. He still wants them to get better. And then there's very erotic sex. <laughs> it's a crazy, crazy movie and one that got really maligned at the time, but which I was really wrapped up in and thought was super cool. Yeah, you. I was. I was about to ask if you didn't say. I'm like, so you like it? Yeah. <laughs> like I was. Oh like, yeah. No, I definitely liked it. It's wild shit. Um, and there's uh, the Kino Blu-ray comes with a longer director's cut that I've not seen. I only watched the theatrical cut. Those on the Criterion Channel, but I'm very eager to check out the longer cut. All right. So unless you have more themes, I am just going to venture into the gaping maw of miscellany here. Um, I do have one more theme, which kind of ties in with the marriage counseling thing I was talking about. But just like, especially as we get into the late 90s and 2000s, you start to get into films that kind of like mock the idea of analysis and therapy, um, either through the sessions themselves or just like through the mentioning of them. So like we talked about that being a factor in like the 50s with like Marilyn Monroe movies or Tony Randall or something like that. But like, uh, I wouldn't say the Royal Tenenbaums like takes Bill Murray's character all that seriously <laughs> until like, I, I think he has like a little twist at the end where like he ends up helping some people out. But it's kind of just like this idea of his patient, oh, I can't remember the patient's name, um, but he's just like constantly keeping this kid in therapy essentially with like no real path towards get him getting better it's just like a constant source of study for him um and similarly uh well speaking of the marriage counseling thing synecdoche new york there's like it starts out as kind of marriage counseling for philip seymour hoffman and Catherine keener with actually hope davis plays their therapist but um even those early sessions are very much like what's this woman really going to do for them <laughs> she's just like asking a lot of banal questions and there's that great part I always think of where Catherine Keener's like, sometimes I just wish she were dead, so then I'd have an excuse to start over guilt-free. And Hope Davis is like, how does that make you feel? And he's like, <laughs> well, awful, obviously. And then like by the time Catherine Keener like juts off to Berlin, it's just him and Hope Davis. She's just like constantly trying to get him to buy her book. 
as like that that'll be like their whole, the whole of their therapy um swear oh yeah not quite mocking it but mr and mrs smith the brad pitt angelina jolie movie um starts out with them in marriage counseling and they have like all these problems they're secretly you know world-class assassins and spies but they end up solving their problems by like killing people together and then like the kind of wraparound thing at the end is they're back in marriage counseling they're like we're doing great now so like the indication is that the counseling wasn't really doing them any good it was just like they had to work on their own shit separately um and then there are a few other films that similarly like kind of take a distance approach from therapy um one from the 60s that we didn't mention was three on a couch um the jerry lewis and oh shit who's the therapist um i swear i just had the movie up do you not remember watching this movie? I watched this movie? Yeah, we watched it together. Oh, wait, with, um, um, oh my God. Uh, Janet Lee. Yeah, I was like Psycho Lady. Psycho Lady. <laughs> uh, yeah, so she plays a therapist who uh, Jerry Lewis is trying to marry, but um, she's so wrapped up in her patients, and of course it's the 60s, so she would have to give up her practice. So Jerry Lewis's solution to this is to, that he suspects that all the women are just in therapy because they're just lonely, and so he just starts dating all of them as as alter egos. As alter egos, yeah, because yeah, it's Jerry Lewis. Oh, I forgot this one. This is a good yeah. one. Um, so that's. I mean, it gets to be a little stranger than that, but it's um, also directed by Lewis and kind of like there was a point in his career in this time where like he was half trying to make Jerry Lewis movies and also half trying to transition and making like kind of regular comedies. Um, most especially see this in Boeing Boeing where he just plays like a guy and this is kind of like half and half of like he still gets to do all his wacky Jerry Lewis personas but then like the main character he plays is just a guy who wants to marry his girlfriend um, even though he's going about it in like the most insane way classic um, Lewis yeah and I would also say yeah, too I mean it. you you touched on this earlier and I know you've watched it rewatched it more recently than me but doesn't Donnie Darko take kind of a distanced approach to therapy it doesn't it doesn't okay um because the film is kind of assuming his perspective on things and he's sure. like not all that invested in it and is a little dismissive of it there's that sense of it too but I can't remember the woman who plays his therapist but she Catherine Ross sure uh, let's go with that. Um, but she invests a lot of like earnestness into her performance. She's not playing into that. And like, it's one of many ways in which the film is like introducing a lot of subjects from his perspective, but then through the performances showing there's more nuance than that. Okay. Um, but those, those scenes are really effective. I think, um, let's see another Jerry Lewis movie that I meant to look up the plot specifics of, but cracking up from the eighties um is similarly about a guy this time he's playing the guy in therapy um but isn't being all that well served by his therapist and i just remember there's one scene where like either he starts tearing apart the therapist's office or it just starts coming apart around him um and it's just very much like a kind of satire of kind of 80s therapy culture of just like figuring out the answer to everyone's problems. Um, another one that kind of tosses it off is uh, Woody Allen's Anything Else, which is one of my favorite movies by him. But um, Jason Biggs plays this guy whose life is just kind of like unraveling in front of him, and especially his girlfriend played by, oh hell, Christina, uh, Christina Ricci. Ricci, yeah. Um, is just like getting more and more distance from him. And mainly because her therapist keeps telling her that uh, their relationship is no good for her. And Jason Biggs like, feels like he has no ability to 
uh, counter that in any way. And eventually, of course, she runs off with her therapist and just is revealed that, like, the reason he was trying to undermine the relationship is so he can deal with Christina Ricci. Um, well, uh, I piggybacking off that, um, off the Woody Allen connection, I think. Um, have you seen What's New Pussycat? Nope. So I actually watched that in one of my favorite classes from college, which is a sex comedy in American cinema class. Real riot. But um, this movie, Peter Sellers plays a psychoanalyst. So you can probably guess how that goes. Um, he's just nuts. He's just completely nuts. Sure. And he's like, um, weirdly, Peter O'Toole is the lead um, playing sure. sort of a normal guy. But like, it's like, it's a sex farce. So it's very like... Peter Sellers' character is just completely insane. He's running these group therapy sessions sort of of just like horny people who are insane. And it's just kind of, it's like a, a bedroom door slamming farce. But it's, you know, it's kind of at that point in the 60s where it's like, okay, we all know what this is. We can kind of like use it for a comedic premise because we all yeah, understand. Totally. Um, I, I just remember the other marriage counseling specific one that I was trying to think of, which was Michael Bay's Ambulance. The way that... Um, the main like so th there's the two guys stealing the ambulance and robbing the bank and then Jake Gyllenhaal had this friend from college who's now like a um, what's the word it's like one of those guys who like talks to the criminals and tries to talk them down from whatever they're a doing a negotiator negotiator kind of thing but he's introduced by being in a marriage counseling session with his husband <laughs> And that's right. Yeah. So I saw ambulance come up when yeah. I did a keyword search for that. And I'm like, that's a mistake. I don't know there, what's happening. No, way. no it's yeah. just because of that one scene. And the only reason I wanted to mention it is because somebody else brought this up when the film came out. And they're like, you know, Michael Bay gets a lot of shit, rightly so, um, for his somewhat non-progressive attitudes. And often, like, his films are loaded with homophobia and stuff like that. But, like, here's a scene where just a gay guy pissed off that he has to go to marriage counseling just like the rest of us. And like, it's just kind of a slightly progressive way to get into um, that character and his role in the movie. True, true. Um, yeah, uh, thank you for clarifying, clarifying that, what, yeah. why that was coming up in my searches. Um, is that, does that conclude that? I think that concludes that general theme. So now I, I divided the miscellany to okay. slightly tame it. I just have therapy as a major component, therapy as a minor sure. component. So as a major component, another new discovery for us, um, one of the first ones I thought of when I had the idea for this episode, we just watched What About Bomb for the first time. Well, I had seen it oh, right. as, Sorry. as a child, but I did not remember any of it and forgot how dark it was. Yeah. So what a damn treat. Yeah. Um, we loved it. It's, um, for those who don't know, it's, I mean, it's a movie about boundaries. It's basically Richard Dreyfuss plays um, a therapist. Uh, Bill Murray plays the titular Bob. They have one session and then, or no, a, a consultation even. Yeah. And then Dreyfuss is like, I'm going on vacation for a month. Bye. And Bill Murray's like, no, but you're going to save me. So he follows him on vacation and like infiltrates his life. Um, what's crazy about this movie is that it is a comedy but it has the structure of a horror movie yeah basically because like the thing about richard dreyfus's character is that he is in the right the whole time like he has the moral high ground he is insisting on there being a patient doctor boundary and no one else agrees with him <laughs> because uh bob wins over his family yeah. he wins over the town that they're vacationing in and like he just keeps like inserting himself more and more into his life while Richard Dreyfuss goes insane. Um, and like really right up till the very end, it's like basically the format of Rosemary's Baby, <laughs> like structurally. You know? I guess. I don't know if I'd go that far to quite make that a uh, combination, but sure. But just like there's a situation that's clearly very wrong and everyone is telling 
the the doctor that it's fine. Sure, sure. So that's just like how it felt to me. So it's like hilarious, but also almost a little like anxiety inducing. Sure. <laughs> um, what, what were you going to add about that? Oh, no, just that it's always a good comedic premise whenever yeah, you have somebody who's in the right and nobody agrees with them. Yeah. Um, and especially when you can get somebody like what I really liked about the film is that it doesn't present him as all that sympathetic. Like he's, the doctor. Yeah, yeah. He's just as high strung and out of his mind as anyone else. Yeah. And clearly on the verge of some sort of mental breakdown. This just happens to be the straw that broke him. <laughs> Yeah, and he also is, like, very concerned about his image because he, like, wrote a best-selling book yeah. and he's, like, going to be on the Good Morning America and is, like, trying to protect his image. And so this crazy guy showing up is, like, puncturing all of that. Yeah, um, yeah it's very dark. It yeah. goes... It's completely out of control and is probably the best example of uh, the, the erosion of the uh, patient-doctor yeah. boundary. Um, but, yeah, we, we liked this very much. We also... Uh, watch for, I think, the first time. Analyze this. Yep, hadn't seen that before. We did not feel super compelled to see the sequel. We were short on time, but... Um, also because I don't think we really loved it that much. Like, we liked it okay. Yeah. Um, but that's, uh, you know, Billy Crystal plays the therapist, and Robert De Niro plays a mobster who has to start going to therapy because he has a lot of anxiety and stuff. Um, seven panic attacks. Seven panic attacks. And one of, one of the funniest parts of the movie for me is that... He he has a panic attack. He's getting like chest pain. He has to go to the hospital, and the doctor tells him it's a panic attack, and he keeps insisting it's a heart attack. Yeah, and it's just like this is how much men will don't want to go to therapy that they would rather <laughs> their heart be falling apart. Yeah. And he's so mad that he beats up the doctor yeah. till like the doctor is like, okay, it's a heart attack. <laughs> like the the degree and just like the fact that he absolutely does not want to go to therapy. You know, when Billy Crystal starts talking about, like, Freudian theory, he's like, why are you talking about my mom like that? That's gross. Like, just this kind of culture clash type of thing. It, it has its moments. It's all right. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that worked best for me is De Niro's performance, where he's, they, he commits to the darkness of this guy, of, like, it doesn't, he's not a funny mobster. He's not a wacky mobster. He's a guy who generally goes out and kills people. Yeah. And is unpleasant to be around. Um, and it's, it's worth at least mentioning The Sopranos. I know we don't talk about a lot of TV on the podcast, or at least try not to, but it'd be ridiculous not to talk about The Sopranos, at least in this context, um, which over the course of its six seasons does really get into some genuinely therapeutic territory, but also kind of points at what we were talking about with like pressure point of like, sometimes the patients just don't get better. And like Tony Soprano has all kinds of breakthroughs throughout the course of therapy, but never really changes or gets any better or does anything with that. That's really productive. Um, so it becomes its own kind of like both acknowledgement and critique of the benefits of therapy. Um, and I should say, I didn't really think about this mentioning it back to back, but analyze this as a similar thing to What About Bob, where Robert De Niro's like, you helped me, follows him on vacation yeah. and just keeps following him around and like demanding they have sessions at all times of the night. Um, Cause you know, when you're a mobster, you assume everyone is at your disposal yeah. and Billy Crystal is trying to have boundaries. Um, Billy Crystal's character also, you could tell he's having a bit of like dissatisfaction with his life before this because there's a scene of him with a patient played by Molly Shannon and he like fantasizes about telling her to fuck off yeah. basically. Um, and then there's a scene later where he's like, like doing couples counseling and he's just like, life is too short. Just do what you want and make each other happy. And they're like, all right. <laughs> um, other miscellany. So this is again, more of a broader character, but across assorted media, um, 
it's a it's a lesser focused on aspect of his life. But Hannibal Lecter is a therapist. Yeah, I mean, it is focused on a lot in the show, though. Sure. Um, for at least the first season and a half, if not the first full two seasons, like dudes are just a therapist. I mean, he's killing people on the side and nobody's catching on to him. But there's a lot of sessions of him giving therapy. And I've said before that in many ways, cannibalism aside, Hannibal Lecter would be my ideal therapist. Okay. Of like somebody who does not care about your problems, but can help you get there. Um, he's just like completely dispassionate and asks all the right questions. Um, does he help people? Does it work? Yeah, sometimes. Or he kills them. I, I'm not talking about the times he kills them. Or he uh, ropes them into killing people with him. Or in the case of Will Graham, he falls in love with them. <laughs> okay, all of that aside, <laughs> Do you think he is good at his job? Yeah, there are, I can't remember, but there are indications that like he does just to have also just regular therapy that does seem to go well. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how much it comes up in the movies because weirdly the only one of the movies I've seen is Hannibal, which okay. is, that's a weird way to go about yeah. it. Um, I think they, in Silence of the Lambs, he, it's not official therapy, but he's sort of therapying Clarice, right? Sort of, but in a way that like is meant to manipulate her. He's like mm -hmm. using the language of a therapist yeah. to like maybe kind of help her, but also undermine her, but also just play with her for the fun of it. Which is what a lot of people do now. Yeah. I've definitely like read these think pieces about like since we're all versed in therapy speak, like we're, some people are using it for evil, like Jonah Hill. <laughs> um, we're all Hannibal Lecter now. We're all Hannibal Lecter now. Um, we touched on you hurt my feelings earlier. I yeah. just wanted to talk about that a little bit more because. Um, uh, why can't I think of his the actor's name? To Toby, something. Something like that. Uh, he's a British guy. Anyway, um, Tobias Menzies. Yeah. Anyway, so he's married to Julia Louis Dreyfus, who's the main character of the film. But he, yeah, plays a therapist, and you just kind of see his different interactions with his patients. Um, probably the funniest is a couple played by um, David Cross and Amber Tamblyn, sure. a real life couple who are just they just hate each other, yeah. and they're just like. <laughs> at each other's throats and then eventually he's like why don't you guys like just get divorced and they're like are you kidding how dare you <laughs> and then they get mad at him and say that the therapy didn't help and they want a refund for all of their sessions yeah. that's my favorite part of that movie yeah um but he also has like other clients who like have very will have very like tunnel vision on like a certain thing like one is played by zach cherry and he'll try to be like well tell me about the rest of your family and tell me about this and zach cherry like only wants to talk about his siblings yeah and he's like well there's maybe a bigger ecosystem around this um so yeah that's just uh you know it's i think you're supposed to take away that he's like pretty good at his job he's not the best therapist to ever live but he's like pretty good yeah i mean it's kind of what i talked about earlier where yeah. like he gets kind of like a second lease on his therapy life mm -hmm. just like investing a little bit more in it where he's like kind of just drawn back but it's not like he becomes like this overwhelming great therapist either he just yeah. becomes like mildly helpful yeah and sometimes that's enough yeah um, I don't remember this movie super well, but I am told the girl on the train has like a major therapy component. Yeah, I don't remember that well either. I mean, I think it's mainly because she's like an alcoholic who like ruined her life, and I think she has therapy sessions. Yeah, I think I looked up the therapist is played by Edgar Ramirez, and it's like she she forgets a lot. She like has yeah. a lot of blackout periods, so like she the therapist is trying to like uncover stuff because she like might have witnessed a crime. I don't know. The movie's not that good, yeah. but I mean. Edgar Ramirez as a therapist sounds in interesting. Yeah. Um, I think that's all I have for miscellany therapy as a major component. I don't know if you have more. 
Uh, yeah, I got a few. Okay. Um, I, I guess it depends on how you consider sports therapy and major component. <laughs> but um, it's up the to interpretation. 1950s movie, The Cobweb, directed by Vincent Minnelli, um, is about Richard Widmark taking over a psychiatric institution. And this was kind of what I was talking about with like purely administrative stuff. Of like, I don't remember there being a lot of therapy scenes, and like most of the time when people who know this movie mention it, they're just like, the drapes! Because there's a lot of like, to do about what the new drapes will be like, which like, you know, there's a little bit of, uh, uh, what's the word, metaphor in the use of them. Um, let's see, therapy is a major component that I haven't already talked about. Oh, um, Jimmy P, Psychotherapy of a Plains Indian, the Arnaud Despachon movie, which I do not remember super well, but um, Mathieu Amarique plays, I think it's based on a true story. I can't remember the uh, person's name, but he plays like a famous historical psychiatrist who's um, administering psychotherapy to, as the title suggests, uh, a Native American played, you know, somewhat insensitively by Benicio del Toro, but you know, French director, he'll uh, flatten things. Um, but it's a really interesting movie, as I recall it. I mean, it's been at least 10 years since I've seen it, but um, their sessions together are really good. And Desplechon has such a nimble sense of like how to tease out psychology in most of his movies anyway, that when you really like button it down to being um, a two-hander like this, it, it works really, really well. Um, let's see. Oh, uh, no, I guess it's more of a minor component movie. Um, uh, the horror movie Last Year's Smile, um, in which, uh, oh God, what's her face? Kevin Bacon's daughter, whatever. So C. Bacon? Yeah. Um, she plays a uh, psychiatrist, therapist, some of the, one word like that, whose um, patients are infected with the smile and then infects her. Um, but the therapy scenes are really cool. And she's like, you know, one of those is like way too committed to her job and like doesn't have a life outside of it. And so the fact that like that's what poisons her, um, you know, the film also plays with like other forms of trauma because every horror movie must. But like I kind of like that the idea that like this woman who's so committed to her job ends up being undone by that job was a good kind of like subtext thing in it. And I think that's all I have for major therapy, but I reserve the right to come back to something. Sure. Um, so for smaller, maybe maybe let's trade off. Sure. Alternate. Okay. So this one, I regrettably don't remember it super well. It may be somewhat more major than I am recalling. Um, and I, there's no real way to like cherry pick it out on YouTube or whatever, but the squid and the whale, um, I don't know yeah. if you remember it better than me. Not super well. No. Okay. Well, so I think, um, Jeff Daniels character is a psychiatrist. I don't know that he, um, you ever see him with patients or anything, but then separately, um, Jesse Eisenberg's character, I think, starts seeing like the counselor at school. Yeah. And I know one of his kind of emotional breakthroughs in his arc is the counselor being like, do you have any happy memories from your childhood? And that, you know, he comes up with the the titular um, pairing of animals, which is like, yeah, I used to right. go to this museum. So it's like that kind of like prompts somewhat of the resolution of his arc. Um I should rewatch that. Do you, are you a squid in the whale person? No, I've seen it twice and I, I didn't get you can't, it either time. You can't hang? No. Okay. There's some no Bombach movies that just bounce right off of me. And okay. That, that was the first to get there. All right. Um, speaking of movies, I can't remember that well, but are definitely interesting. Ingmar, Ingmar Bergman's Face to Face. Um, I know. I allegedly saw this with you. Can't remember it at all. <laughs> yeah. It's um, about a uh, psychiatrist played by Liv Ullman who... Um, it just starts unraveling. Like, I can't remember, like, what spurs it. I do just remember that... It's just Sweden. Everyone's unraveling. <laughs> um, 
that um, essentially like she just goes on these really wild like dream sequences that are really really cool it mainly available in this theatrical form but there was actually a t- made for tv version that's much longer that i do have an illegal download of that i keep meaning to watch but i have not yet seen um what else do i have uh annie hall has a great uh therapy scene where it's um alvi and annie are seeing their therapists separately and it's like the side-by-side scene of um their their therapists are asking them basically the same questions and they're answering in a similar way, but have very different feelings about it. Yeah. Um, the only one I can remember explicitly is the therapist asked both of them again separately, um, how often do you have sex? And Annie says constantly three times a week. And he says barely ever three times yeah. a week. And it's just like an interesting uh, depiction of like how people can interpret the same events differently and process them differently, you know? Yeah, but also kind of gets at the sense that like, they should be talking to each other about this mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. like how sometimes therapy can create distance between people because they're like, well, I'm talking about with somebody I'm taking care of. But yeah. um, if they're not talking about together, then it doesn't really serve the two of them. Um, fortunately, my next one is also a Woody Allen film um, that I actually just talked about last week on the show. So I won't dig into too much, but another woman, um, Gina Rowlands plays a, a academic and who's writing a book who retreats to this kind of rented room that is next to a therapist's office and she can through the heating ducts overhear the courses conversations and um so yeah it's kind of a minor component but it ends up getting into a way to get into her own psychology um now i'm gonna bring this one up although you watched it far more recently than i did so maybe you have more to say about it um how to lose a guy in 10 days there's like fake couples therapy how to lose a guy in 10 days fake couples therapy Basically, so, you know, the, the premise of the movie is that they're dating and they're trying, one is trying to keep the relationship going, one is trying to sabotage yes. it. Okay. And so I think it's Kate Hudson gets her friend to pretend to be a couples therapist to undermine them or something. Yeah. played by Anna Gastar, um, who is very funny. Um, yeah, so essentially that plotline is, like, designed to kind of break them up. But as with every other plotline throughout the film, it's just getting them thrown closer and closer together. Um, that's a really good movie that I think, like... There are people who watch, and like it's not like I don't do this, but there's two strings of romantic comedies where like some romantic comedies are about like the sweetness of the romance, and some are just about here's these absolute psychopaths and they're perfect for each other because they're both insane. And How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days is primo two psychopaths. It's your turn. It is my turn. Yeah. Um, let's see another brief one to touch on, but Gross Point Blank um, is another like therapist to a criminal in this case a hitman. Um, and we talked about this on our Alan Arkin kind of remembrance on the Patreon, but um, Alan Arkin plays uh, John Cusack's therapist. Um, and it's just like kind of just over John Cusack's problems, <laughs> which is like a great mode for Alan Arkin to play. Oh, yeah. Um, so that's a fun little minor one. Um, also, one we saw very recently uh, from this year, uh, Fremont. Um, this yeah. one, I was sitting there kind of like wagging my finger at it because. Uh, Oh my God! Who's the name of the guy uh, who plays him? Is oh, it? Oh, the freaking Tim and Eric guy. Is it which one? Well, I guess Tim Heidecker. Right? No, it's not. Um, I don't. It's Greg Turkington. He's Greg not, Turkington. He's okay. Not Tim or Eric. He's just associated. Okay. With him. Um, yeah, he plays. They say it's a therapist, but he both prescribes medication and does talk therapy. But he like works for like the state, and yeah. I'm like, I don't think this is a thing <laughs> that exists in this world. But fine. Um, this 
this character like was not working for me because they make him Damn. super wacky. I mean, I mean, the story, the main story is he's about. Not, well, he's not super wacky. It's like that deadpan wacky. It's deadpan wacky, but this. Um, the main story is about this woman. She's a refugee from Afghanistan. Yeah. And she's just like trying to make her way in the Bay Area. So she like tries to see him. And it is that thing, that classic archetype of she's like, I just want pills to sleep. I just want pills to sleep. And he is trying to be like, okay, clearly something else is happening. Like you have war trauma. You're a refugee. Like, can we talk about that? And she's like, I just want to sleep. Just want to sleep. Just want to sleep. Um, but then they give him all these quirks that are like annoying. Yeah. And I'm like, you could have made this like, I mean, I don't know. wasn't really working for me, but... No, I mean, the whole movie wasn't working for me. The, yeah. The, those things were, like, prime among them. Yeah. Um, I should have gotten this in the major therapy section. Uh, How dare you? The Sixth Sense, um, in which uh, Bruce Willis, despite being unknowingly dead, continues to administer... Uh, Whoa. I know. Whoa. <laughs> no, I mean, like, obviously... I, so I just watched this for the first time. I was really blown away by it. I think it's really incredible. Um, but... It, I think it works better if you know the twist because you get the sense of you, you have a stronger sense of why everything feels a little bit ethereal and disconnected um, and in some ways why Bruce Willis is so dedicated to this kid because he's the only patient he really has you know the film kind of tosses off the possibility that he's that Bruce Willis has just been so traumatized by being shot and unknowingly killed that um, that's the reason he only has one patient and is so geared towards him but um, I, I think it works better if you know what Haley Joel Osment knows, which is that um, they're just having these sessions in kind of an ethereal world. Yeah. And like sidebar, I do. I feel like it's a mark of quality when you can know the twist of a movie and it's either as good or better. Totally. I think there are some movies that once you know the twist, you're like, eh. Yeah. Um, I this is not a movie that qualifies, but I feel like Arrival. I almost liked it better when I saw the second. I know. Time. I kind of want to watch it again. Um, because you realize that I'm not going to spoil it, but Amy Adams is effectively playing two different things at the same time, and then I just get enraged all over again that she wasn't nominated for an Oscar, and then I just you know tear sinks out of the wall. Of anyway, um, what else do we have? Oh, so The Matrix Resurrections, kind yep. of. <laughs> um, Neil Patrick Harris like plays. Well, he's not Neo, or is he? plays Keanu Reeves's character's therapist yeah. and then it's only to be revealed to be the villain yeah because they're using the they're kind of using the word analyst more broadly sure um but yeah very smarmy yeah um Peter Bogdanovich's She's Funny That Way which has recently been discovered in its fuller form as a scroll uh Nuts of Squirrels or Scroll the Nuts I can't remember what version but anyway uh there's a fuller version of the film that Bogdanovich wanted out there that then got chopped up by Lionsgate um that I have not seen yet but she's funny that way it's still a pretty solid film and it, it has one of my favorite I don't even know if it's broad enough to be an archetype but um Jennifer Aniston plays a child therapist who just like hates children and hates her job and it kind of reminded me a bit of um Tilda Swinton and Burn After Reading playing a child's doctor who also hates children and hates her job um and it's a mode that Jennifer Aniston doesn't get to play a lot of just like despising people but which uh, she plays very convincingly I gotta say um I also I put this one with a question mark because we were very on the fence about like whether people who exclusively do hypnotherapy count sure I just wanted to shout it out because it's a, a huge popular movie Get Out I mean Catherine Keener's oh, sure. character is I mean it's not really clear if that's the only kind of therapy she does it's I mean she does it on Daniel Kaluuya but it doesn't 
I mean, anyway, the point is, it's a very iconic scene at this point where she hypnotizes him into the sunken place. And that arguably in some ways kind of kicks off the main like plot machinations of the movie. Um, So that's definitely the idea of like taking a therapist and making them very sinister and turn almost kind of harkening back to a bit of like a cabinet of Dr. Caligari type of relationship of like abusing that relationship towards sinister ends. Although she doesn't say she's hypnotizing him, that right? right yeah. So, you know, obvious ethics breach in a movie about, you know, murdering people. But, um, so, yeah. Uh, I was wrong. She's funny that way. She's just a regular therapist, not a child therapist. She does still hate her job and hate her patients, though. Okay. Um, let's see. Oh, my favorite film of a couple of years ago, Baby Teeth. Um, ben Mendelsohn plays a therapist um, who is just, like, super depressed and is only really getting off on therapy anymore by uh, using his sessions to have sex with his wife occasionally. Um, That's just an incredible movie all around and uh, has a good, it has a good actually therapist office, which we haven't really talked about those as much, but like, I always like the design of therapy offices. Oh yeah, we've seen a lot of couches on screen lately. Yeah, but it's like, sometimes they're like, just very modest rented rooms and sometimes they're like the most elaborate gorgeous interiors you've ever seen what's like a fancy one well the one in baby teeth is pretty good okay um the ones in dangerous method are pretty good um the ones in the cobweb were pretty good okay i was trying to think of some others but i i guess the closer you get to that kind of like ornate psych analysis stuff you sure. start to get into some quality quality couches yeah yeah, couch cinema, underrated genre. Actually, Prince of Tides, they're not always on the couch, but her office is pretty nice. That That's a very, like, cla- like everything is wood paneled, yeah. and it's just, like, books. Just so many books. Yeah. But I think she may even have a city view, because they're in Manhattan. Yeah, she does. Um, Babs is doing all right for herself there. Um, this is pretty minor, but in the David Mamet movie House of Games, um, the female lead, whose name I can't remember, Lindsay something? Lindsay Krauss? Is that sure. a person? Um she at the start of the movie she just like is a therapist and just like living her life and she has a patient who's like i'm in a lot of debt and the mob is gonna kill me and for some reason she's like let me investigate this personally (laughs) um so she like goes to the mobster and is like can you not have there be debt and that's how she gets sucked into like because then there's some guy who's like oh you're good at noticing things about people and that's how she gets sucked into a criminal underworld so right on not the most you saw this movie. Do you not remember this? Not too well. Okay. Not the most <laughs> scrupulous therapist. <laughs> sure. Um, I think the only one I have left that I didn't mention is a very minor inclusion of this, which is that there, there is a psychiatrist character in Bringing Up Baby who has the famous line, the love impulse in man frequently reveals itself in terms of conflict, which is like lays out the thesis of that <laughs> film in every other Howard Hawks movie. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Uh, I only have one more as well. All right, great. Great symmetry. Um, this is somebody, this is one that somebody mentioned to me last minute, but um, Marriage Story actually stealthily starts in oh, yeah. marriage counseling, which is a great, like, reveal, because what it is, is it's um, the two characters are doing a voiceover of what they love about the other person. And then it's a montage of that other person being great. And then you cut to a therapist's office and it's revealed that they are doing that because the therapist made them do it and their marriage is in shambles. Yeah. So that's a kind of like pretty effective rug pull. Um, I did want to, well, you did already kind of answer it, but I did want to ask 
Of these fictional therapists, which would you most like to have? Are you sticking with Hannibal Lecter? Minus the murder? <laughs> no, I mean, in, in actuality, I'd, I'd, Robin Williams is a pretty easy answer. That's a good one. He, he has the right approach of like a little bit removed, but just friendly enough to get you going. For me, like, I'm sorry, hard line in the sand, cannot see a male therapist, um, just can't do it. So I would have to go with, with Babs, with Barbara. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, a lot of them, it's like, yeah, are they going to violate ethics? Are they, I mean, she might fall in love with me. That is a risk that I would be running. Sure. But, um, you know, she seems pretty good at her job, pretty committed. Um, yeah. So do you have any other concluding thoughts to add? Oh, gosh. Um, no, I, I just really enjoyed uh, the kind of blitz of movies we went through for, for this sure. episode. There's a lot of stuff that I meant to see for a while. Um, and which were, yeah, now, I mean, now, like, Freud's, like, one of my favorite movies. Um, and it was just cool to think about this topic more fully in how it developed over the course of the past hundred years of movies, how it's changed, how in some ways it stayed the same, um, and how it kind of reflected uh, American society's changing attitudes towards um, emotional and mental health. Yeah, and I'm going to pivot into a sales pitch and say, if you were thinking about starting therapy and you haven't yet, this is your sign from the sure. universe. I think, on, like we said before, I think anyone can benefit from it. Um, I think some people will go to one therapist and it won't work out and they'll be like, therapy's not for me. And I'm like, okay, well, that's like going to one restaurant and saying you don't like food. Like, there's as many types of therapy and therapists as there are like stars in the sky, like keep searching. Um, I know it can be expensive and that super sucks, but there's resources like Open Path Collective um, offers low cost therapy, um, sometimes through the universities, through the government. Um, there are therapists that offer sliding scale, psychologytoday.com directory has those. Um, it's just really worthwhile. And I know there's a lot of stereotypes around it, but it can be really rewarding. Also make sure you're seeing the right kind. If it's just a psychiatrist, they can only prescribe you medication. So sometimes people will go to one and be like, oh, they just wanted to drug me up. And it's like, that's their job. Um, I realize it's confusing and I'm sorry that it's confusing, but yeah, it was really cool to binge all these movies. I mean, this is a, I was a psych minor in college. <laughs> so this topic is near and dear to my heart. Um, where can people find you online, Scott? Uh, gosh, at uh, Twitter and Blue Sky, Rail of Tomorrow, and on Letterboxd, where I've been uh, more committed to and actually fulfilling my um, wish of writing something about each movie I see, at least a couple of notes. Um, very cool. I'm an online enigma, like I'm sort of on Twitter, but Twitter seems to be dying. So all that really matters is go see a therapist. Um, and you can do that online, too. You can do that. I mean, I've never met mine in real life. Yeah. She lives in San Diego or something. But yeah, that's another great thing that has happened because of the pandemic is you can now pretty much generally see anyone in your state. So yeah. it really opens up the pool pretty dramatically. You live in a big ass state like this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for listening. Yeah. And uh, well, David and I will get you next time. All right. Bye. Bye.